Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. Every episode is available for free, nearly 600 episodes and counting. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also rate and review the show at iTunes. That helps the cause. Thanks very much. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Uh, Every stupid fun. thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, Jeez, what a struggle, you know? There will be it was blood. incredible. It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. How are you out there, wherever you are? Are you doing okay? I hope you're well. I have Chris L. Terry back on the program for a second time. He is celebrating the publication of a new novel called Black Card. It's available from Catapult Press, and it was just good to see him and to catch up and commiserate, find out where he is in life and in art. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. I got a letter from a listener named Keegan. He writes, Hi, Brad. You were mentioned in a recent episode of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. You come up at the one hour, 20 minute, 45 second mark. It's an interview with Anna Kachayan. Apologies to Anna if I've just mispronounced her name. Uh, Co-host of the popular lefty podcast Red Scare. They are talking about a liberal overreaction to Trump. And he brings up your name. For the record, I disagree with Ellis completely here. I just thought it would be interesting for you. He does call you very handsome, which is fun. Love the show. All the best. Keegan. So thanks, Keegan. I appreciate it. And I got this email when I was out of town last week on vacation. So I haven't had a chance yet. I'm just back into town now, and I haven't had a chance to listen but uh, subsequently, I did receive word from multiple people telling me essentially the same thing. And from what I gather, it's a relatively benign mention. Like Brett is just talking, you know, Brett who believes that, uh, you know, the resistance is a like out of proportion overreaction is on one side of the line. I believe Trump is an existential threat. And that's our difference of opinion, which 
for those of you who might be new to the show, Brett Easton Ellis and I got into a long conversation on this podcast in episode 587 back in July. So if you want to hear that, uh, just listen to episode 587. I think that's what you know he's obviously referencing in his own show. So thanks, Kagan, for the heads up. I appreciate it. Thanks to Brett Easton Ellis for uh, the name drop and for thinking that I'm handsome. I don't know how to process that. I also want to say thank you to everybody out there who is listening to this program. The month of August this month is shaping up to be the biggest in the history of the show by a very good margin. And in general, over the course of this summer, the the listenership numbers have exploded to the degree that it's like I got freaked out about it. And I even contacted the company that like hosts the show, like hosts like the back end for the show. And I was like, is something wrong? (laughs) Are bots uh, like attacking my show? Why is this happening? Why are people listening to this show like this? This can't be real. And uh, they were like, no, everything's good. Just people are listening. Not, and not that people didn't listen before, but there's just been such a massive spike that it's, uh, it's unusual. And I appreciate it. So, you know, I'm almost, uh, like the show is almost entering its ninth year of existence. I've been at this for a long time, almost 600 episodes. I don't really pay that much attention to numbers. It's not something that I fixate on. I don't think you really can if you're doing literary stuff. I think that's a, that's a great way to be uh, miserable or, you know, it's just a great way to be miserable in general is to fixate on numbers constantly. But I do, you know, I do look every once in a while to see how things are going. And typically over the, over the history of the show, over these past eight years, it's been slow and steady growth. And then suddenly there's just been this massive upswing, which is gratifying and a little spooky. Like, why is this happening? Maybe it's hit some sort of a critical mass at nearly 600 episodes, but whatever the case, if you've been listening for a long time, yeah, thank you. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thanks for listening. And in particular, I think if you're out there and you are kind enough to talk about the show, if you like it, uh, on social media and elsewhere, that really helps. I think that's got to be a big part of it. And hopefully the trend continues. We'll see. But uh, it's looking good. And Uh, I appreciate it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now. 
wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Chris L. Terry. His new novel, Black Card, is available now from Catapult Press. Just a wonderful conversation uh, and great to catch up with him. Here he is, folks. This is Chris L. Terry. Yeah, I remember I managed to not have a hangover for maybe the first nine months that my kid was alive. And then that first hangover, I was like, oh, yeah, no, we just don't do that anymore. I'm not changing a diaper with this, you know, (laughs) raging headache. Yeah. So is this the is this the first book you've published since the last book? It is. Yeah, it is. Okay. so I mean, but I mean, and no judgment. You're talking to somebody who's been working on a book for like more than a decade. But wow. um, you had a kid, which will throw a wrench into anybody's writing routine. Mm-hmm. Like, did you have trouble? Did you go through a period where you just, like a long period where you just didn't work because you were doing childcare stuff? And I, I did the opposite uh, in that I forced myself to work when it maybe was not productive. Um, that first year I managed to get, right before, Felix, my kid's name Felix, and right before he was born, I'd completed a really sloppy first draft of this book. So this would have been summer 2014 um and then i spent the next year working on another one um that refined the story a little bit but like considering the amount of energy time and stress it i might have been it might have been better to be easier on myself you know yeah you like you have this big change coming in your life and you're like i'm not gonna let go of the writing yeah you sort of hang on tight i get that you know you want to try to uh muscle through yeah I'm, i'm super i'm super regimented so i was the kid was coming and it's kind of an unknown and i'm like i'm never gonna run again i I love to run i'm never gonna like sleep (laughs) i'm never gonna write and none of those things are true i still found time to do all those things i just don't don't have hangovers no the legend of this podcast i always talk about this whenever i'm talking to somebody not on not not even necessarily on this show but about like you know having a child and how that's going to change their routine especially around creative work and i'm like listen I'll never forget interviewing Amy Bender and she had young twins and she's like writing her next collection or her next book in like 10 minute increments. Sheesh. That's why she's Amy Bender. Yeah. She had like (laughs) 10 minute sessions where she would just like force herself to sit there and just like, you know, get words down and bit by bit by bit, she was like doing it. And I I think there is something to be said for keeping, I, I call it keeping the engine warm, you know, so you can just dive back in if you have those 10 or 15 minutes. I know some people that work that way. Yeah. I have to like, I feel like I, you know, I need to get better, like, like sharper in my, uh, approach, but I feel like I, I need all this warm up time. Like I can't just like jump in for 10 minutes and jump out and like, I guess maybe, I, I guess maybe I can, and I just don't think I can, but that seems hardcore. Like I sort of need to give myself a moment. Dick, yeah. Dick around on Twitter for an hour, you know, like re <laughs> flip through a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, I mean, before I became a parent, I, I, I realized that like, even on the day when I had all day to write, I'd probably only bang out about 90 minutes worth of work because yeah, I'd like be jogging and screwing around on social media and all that stuff. So how much are you running? Uh, I go running three or four times a week, um, oh, okay. like four to six mile runs. Um, and I go swimming once too. I started learning how to do that in case I messed up my knees. It's good. I think it's good. Uh, you know, I'm an advocate of mixing it up, especially, as you like get into middle age, um, mm-hmm. I think repetitive stress, doing the same thing over and over again, no matter what it is, can tend to wreak havoc. Yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm scared of that. And so, so, and swimming isn't swimming like swimming is like the best exercise ever. It's yeah. Different resistance. Cause you're not really hitting anything. You're just pushing against the water, but like also like really like cardio intensive. Like sw- swimming is exhausting. Yeah. I could, I could probably run 
I, I could go for a run right now for like an hour, but like I, I probably couldn't swim five laps in a row. So are you doing like like real swimming? Like you wear a speedo when you go in? No speedo. I just wear like an ordinary swimsuit. Um, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Chris Terry does not wear a speedo when he swims. Not yet, anyway. I go to the pool at the college where my wife is a professor, and I'm just immediately humbled by all the really ripped water polo players that are practicing like ten feet away. Yeah, those yeah. Those, <laughs> those are people who are actually in shape. Yes, everybody else is. Uh, you know, you try to play that sport without uh, any foundation. Like, you, I'd probably drown. You'd yeah. have to fish me out of the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's cool, man. And then you know, your book. I feel like your book speaks to and i did not have time to like listen to our first conversation and like like brush up but from what i recall i feel like a lot of what is in black card was in our conversation that first time around like when i was learning about your life and upbringing yeah um it feels like a lot of that is fused in am i am i misremembering i didn't have time to listen either but i do remember talking about that a lot too um, so why in, don't you give, let's give listeners like a brief overview then of just like where, cause I don't want to do the same conversation twice, but, um, I do think it's helpful, uh, when we're talking about your book to just have people be oriented in like your upbringing, sure. um, your biracial mm -hmm. that factors into the book. Um, can you just give like the 30,000 foot view? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I was born in 1979. I have a, a black father from Richmond, Virginia, um, and an Irish American mother from the Boston area. Um, yeah, we lived in Boston, um, until I was 15. And then we moved to Richmond where I went to high school and college. Um, and at the time I was also playing in punk rock bands and traveling the world or traveling North America and Europe. So some of the world, um, and to, to those of you out there in, in uh, podcast land, you can't see I'm on the paler side. Um, I have like kind of whitish skin, freckles, uh, curly red hair, blue eyes. Um, so to a lot of people, I look like a white man. To other people, I kind of look like kid from Kid and Play. If you're of a certain <laughs> age, like if you're 35 plus, I kind of favor Kid and Play in coloration. Um, you could say Kid and Play with an MFA. Um, my first book, Zero Fade, doesn't deal with mixed race identity. It's a like a coming of age story about a middle school kid's misconceptions about. Um, adulthood and masculinity one of the main conflicts is that the kid's a homophobe and a like teenage boy type of way he thinks it's like gay guys are gross and his favorite uncle is coming out of the closet okay so speaking of race it, like this particular moment in um, american history is uh, i think especially fraught um but it's always there you know and it's always been there since the founding of this country mm -hmm. but one of the things that occurred to me um, not only with your book, but just generally lately is how inescapable it is. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about you and I started thinking about, um, being biracial and how it's like doubly inescapable for people who like, are, uh, embodying more than one race, mm -hmm. uh, especially in America. It's the white black dynamic that I think is most central to our history and to yeah. a lot of the, um, the suffering and struggles that, uh, the country has been through. And, um, then another thing that occurs to me is the, the extreme delicacy around language and care around language that one needs to have to communicate about any of this effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, like one false word mm -hmm. <laughs> can muck up the works yeah, and yeah. can send, uh, can, can send things spiraling in a, you know, dramatically negative direction. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have to tell you all this stuff, but I imagine 
as somebody who's written uh, a book about this and has lived through and continues to live through this experience, um, you know, you must have, like, I would imagine you have a lot of feelings about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you wrote a book about it. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, this is definitely a stressful, unhappy time. Um, but I think that the good side of the, the fraughtness is fraughtness a word. I think so. Yeah, right. It is here. Um, the upside of the fraughtness is like a, a lot of the concerns that I'm hearing are coming from people who maybe uh, weren't thinking about those things before. So if you ask, I think for a lot of people of color, we already knew a lot of these things. And a lot of the static right now is coming from people who had the privilege of not having to think about that. Finally starting to think about that, which is a relief. Um, not that I, I wish it wasn't happening this way, you know? Um, but I, I think it is starting some very important conversations and hopefully, uh, something more constructive or something more positive will come out at the end. Well, it's externalized yeah. a lot of which was previously kept under wraps, um, uh, you know, mostly for ill. Like, yeah, I think we're seeing Trump having given, um, permission or a sense of uh, a feeling of permission and freedom uh, for a lot of racist people yeah. to fly their flag and to be um, openly, um, you know, uh, openly racist. And yeah. so I think for um, a lot of people of color, it's no big shock. But it's also kind of a, see, I told you this shit was racist, right. but I couldn't really prove it before. Right. It's, so it's that, that feeling. I know? think the bigger shock is for... Um, you know, white people in particular who uh, are not racist, but might not have understood the depth or the scale of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe in that sense, it's, it's a positive because it's undeniable now Yeah. to anybody with uh, eyes and ears. Yeah. And I, I have some thoughts about that too. I think that, um, that even like n not having the, that privilege of not seeing the problem is, could be considered a form of racism. And one of my campaigns, as I talk about this book is that I want to kind of I want to lower the bar for what's considered racist and what's talked about as racist and what is, um, and even the consequences of that. Cause I think, you know, you call something racist and somebody automatically goes on the defensive. Um, but there's so much, so much racist shit out there. Um, that it, I, I think just like the, the smaller stuff where people call it microaggressions sometimes, um, is not, aren't, aren't being addressed because it carries this weight of being called, being called racist. And I wish that, calling something racist didn't have so much weight. That's the kind of thesis of what I'm saying here. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's you different, know? it's like a spectrum, right? I think yeah, that's kind yeah. of what you're saying. Like there's, there's like the really vile, hateful, <laughs> um, like cartoonish racism almost where you're just like, Whoa, like this is a dark soul. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there are people who, like you say, who, um, who, you know, maybe have blind spots that they shouldn't have, yeah, but are yeah. well-intentioned generally. <laughs> right. Right. And, and like, I think like I would call them like winnable, um, you know, <laughs> like, like redeemable. Some of these people, like, I hate to say it, like it's, you know, maybe they're redeemable in some ultimate sense, but boy, that's a lot of work. Right. Right. And then there are other people where it's it's less work, like people who I think want to do the right thing, but might just be blinded by their privilege in a, in ways that are, um, a little egregious, but it's fixable. Like we can work yeah. with this and, you know, to be perfectly candid, I might fall into this camp a little bit, like, like no ill intent, but just like not paying attention the way that I should have been not seeing as clearly as I should have been. Sure. There's always room to improve on this stuff. And 
I think another like thing that uh, your book and this subject matter generally makes me think about, even though I'm like kind of Buddhist agnostic in my orientation now, I was raised Catholic, but I think about like Christian, <laughs> I think about the Christian um, value system in particular, like forgiveness, mm-hmm. love thy enemy as thyself, like uh the meek shall inherit the earth, the sermon, you know, like all this stuff like comes to mind as I think about like, well, what, what are we really supposed to do? And like, what is the outcome that we're looking for? And I think in the context of maybe like, uh, you know, cable news conversations or in especially social media conversations, it's like, well, what, what outcome are we aiming for? Do we want vengeance or do we want justice? And like, and if it's one or the other, like, what does that look like? Yeah. And I worry, I think sometimes that if it's vengeance and that's often how it feels emotionally, which Mm -hmm. is understandable, but what I worry is that it would perpetuate. It's like violence begets violence, like that deeper wisdom or whatever, which is not specific to one faith tradition. Yeah. But it's like, wow, if we really want to create harmony and a society that's colorblind and at peace, like, how do we do that? I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I've been um, I've been working on a freelance job where I'm researching polit- some political history over the last maybe like century and a half. Um, and it's interesting to see how politics, you know, it, it is often just like a pendulum that swings back and forth. And it's kind of like liberalism and then conservatism. And it, yeah, I, I don't have an easy answer for that. It's just something I was just thinking about yesterday, though. Yeah. And it's like. I think the answer is not, I mean, I think there's politics is a big part of the answer. There has to be political action as a, as a component of a movement towards justice, but it also is spiritual for lack of a better word. I mean, look at the civil rights movement. I mean, who was its leader? It was like a preacher, Yeah, you know, who was particularly eloquent and, uh, you know, just had all of the, uh, strength and charisma to lead it. But was, We're talking about MLK here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also that but then there's also I mean, he wasn't the only person. I mean, I think there's like this um there's like that uh the MLK versus Malcolm X sort of dichotomy in yeah. theoret- or philo- philosophically, uh that I think there's, you know, there's kind of been a long argument over in terms of which one is the right approach. Yeah, I mean I I think there was someone was saying told MLK that like that nonviolent shit's gonna get you killed. And it did. But then again, Malcolm X didn't live either, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's such tough stuff, but, um, did it, uh, like, do you feel like from a a personal identity perspective, you feel like you found solid ground you know, as a person, I I think of like, um, you know, uh, like the popular, uh, culture, um, corollary is like Obama. You know, he's like the, the, the guy who, um, seems to have really done a lot of work, like deep work in resolving those kinds of questions, not only around his racial identity, but I think relationship to his dad, you know, that book that he wrote. Yeah. I always, you could really feel that in him, that there was a solidity. Um, he just projects such like confidence and calm, like no neurosis. Like he's not a neurotic guy at all. (laughs) And as a neurotic guy, I'm like, wow, you know, um, (laughs) But, I think you you know you need to know yourself so that you can know what to do, and it, it seems like he definitely wouldn't have you know rose the way that he did if he didn't do that work. Yeah, 
Every every uh, person who seeks high public office should have to do that kind of work. That'd be nice, huh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they all write books, but they, they don't really write them. Like, that book was written, I think, crucially before he ever entered public life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was really uh, searching. And, you know, it's a... Uh, it's a good process to put your put yourself through. I mean, it's hard, but it's healthy. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I don't know that I'll ever. I'll, I will always have my insecurities about my identity and about where I fit in in the world. Um, but I've done a lot of work over the last 10, 11 years of my life, especially. It was something that I was. I spent a few years leading up to that, looking for ways to do that work, and finally started to find it um, in my late twenties, early thirties. How do you do it in in writing or? Yeah. Uh, writing helped. Um, it was first, I wanted to get the hell out of Richmond, Virginia. Um, and I moved to New York, um, because I wanted to be around just a better mix of people. And I, I started, I felt like I was getting that there. Um, and then I moved to Chicago to get a creative writing MFA. So I was writing and a lot of the stuff that I was exploring in writing was stuff about like mixed race, black identity. Um, so I was laying the groundwork for the book black card pretty much within, you know, my first semester of grad school. Um, and at the same time, just completely serendipitously, um, at Columbia College, Chicago, I got offered a student worker job in the multicultural affairs office. I just signed up for like a work study type of job and they found my resume and contacted me. And, you know, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything on my resume that said that I, uh, really needed that, but I really needed that. So I got to be around lots of different people. Um, and I really, I got to know myself as a black person. In, in Chicago, I would say, in part through that job. So thanks, Kim Weatherly, if you're listening to this. That's I, my old boss. <laughs> I'm wondering, is there, a, you've lived in New York, Chicago, and L.A. Mm -hmm. um, like, of the three cities, was there one that distinguished itself as um, being, like, the most sane uh, <laughs> on matters of race? <laughs> um, so I think that I, I, it's been 15 years since I moved to New York. Um, and I think culture has changed a lot since then. So this is, I lived... I left New York before Obama was elected. Um, I think L.A. is is my favorite so far. Um, I feel like there's just the first time I came to California, I was in my early 20s and I was on tour with my band. Um, and I woke up one morning as I was in a punk band uh, with four, four white men um, who I'm still friends with. <laughs> uh, but I, I woke up one morning and we were staying at someone's house and I want to say it was Santa Barbara or Goleta, like near there. And I realized my bandmates were the only white folks there. And it was in this kind of punk rock context, which felt really overwhelmingly white. And that was my first idea that maybe coming West, there'd be things had browned a bit more, as they say, sometimes, you know, people, there were more like mixed race people, more, more black people doing the stuff I wanted to do. And like Brown people doing the stuff that I wanted to do. Um, and I still feel like that here. Even um, I'm glad that my kid is having the experience of living around a bunch of different people. I went to pick him up at daycare a few months ago and him and some of his friends were singing songs. And it was like every single kid on the rug was like a mixed race kid with slightly different heritage. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I really, you know, I, I, they, you, they, you talk about like wanting to your kids to have experiences that you didn't have. And I'm really happy to be giving that to my child. I hope it, I hope it helps them. Well, it, it's gotta be easier to grow up in Los Angeles as a mixed race child than it is to grow up in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I can say, I mean, you just, you don't fully maybe feel like you belong to the white community or the black community. Mm -hmm. I mean, you did you feel that you felt that explicitly a bit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, um, 
Yeah. Talk about that experience. It's got to be so interesting. Like you have to have had experiences in your life where you're with a bunch of white people who don't realize maybe that you are African-American. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely go incognito sometimes, especially <laughs> like I, I used to have shorter hair. I think my hair is one of the main tells. Yeah. Um, and I used to have really short hair. Yeah. Well, let me rewind a little bit. So we were in the Boston suburbs at first and we were in like a Jewish enclave. Um, so I went to school with lots of kids that like if you were to describe them, it could also sort of look like me, like curly hair, fuller lips, paler skin. So I wasn't and I, there weren't very many black people around. Um, yeah. So I wasn't I, I was I wasn't really thinking I had the privilege of not having to think about race and identity very much um, until I was maybe a preteen and I started to get a sense of the world. This would have been like circa 1990 when there was. It feels like it was a really good black pop culture era, like in Living Color and Arsenio Hall. And um, there was quality black art in the mainstream, I think. I also am biased because that was my age or my era. Um, but yeah, we moved to Richmond and it was a lot more of a black-white dichotomy. Um, so this was the, would have been the mid-1990s. Um, like end of the crack era, Richmond was still a really violent place. Uh, neck and neck with Gary, Indiana, usually for per capita murders. Um and the population was like maybe like 55% black, 45% white. Um, I'd never really lived around black people before. And I, I was like, you felt good. I'm, I'm coming home. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get to know myself a bit more. And I think I was just deeply into some white shit that I didn't realize and like didn't really click. <laughs> what was the white line. shit? Like punk rock or <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like skateboarding and the beastie boys and shit. And I mean, I, I know that's just kind of um, topical or superficial things, but I also hadn't had, um, a lot of the experiences that a lot of the black people that I was meeting were having. Um, and you know, and, uh, and as soon as it, as soon as it, that proved to be difficult, I kind of retreated into punk rock. Um, and that's, you know, it's embarrassing to admit, but it was also like two thirds of my life ago at this point. So, well, what's embarrassing about retreating into punk rock? Um, it's like a good place to retreat when you're an adolescent. I mean, as good a place as any. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's true. But I think it was me being like, this is my first chance to really get to know myself as a black person and to, um, deal with race head on. And I was like, or green day, you know? And it's like, <laughs> all right, th that's probably taking the easy way out. Right. But I got some very good things out of punk rock. But what um, else are you going to like? What are you supposed to do? You know, like, and I think that's what your book is about to try to prove your bona fides. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, and it, it almost seems like being a tryhard is even is even worse in some ways, or that just can set you up for failure, spectacular failure, as opposed to this kind of tiptoeing away that I was doing. Well, and it's like, it's like, maybe it's not an either or like, or, or a both kind of thing, but that being mixed race is just its own thing. But that's the thing that it isn't. It, that's the other pisser. Well, I don't know. It's, it's a good thing, but it's a complicating thing is that it isn't its own thing. It's like, there's people like me who are half black, half white. And then there's all sorts of mixed race could be so many different combinations of things. And it's to the point where like some people don't even like to say biracial anymore, because at this point, like someone who has comes from two different heritages can be having a kid with somebody from two other heritages. And then they have a kid who isn't biracial. They're like quadracial or something. And yeah, it's, it's evolving fast, I which that, I think is a good thing. I think that's what we, that's what we need. Yeah. Like it just needs to get to the point where it's just no longer an issue. It's, and I say this with humility, it's exhausting, <laughs> right? It's exhausting for me. It must be like a hundred times as exhausting for people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, for just sane people in general who just want there to be some peace and harmony, it's like, like, here's what, here's what's exhausting about it to me is that it's so stupid. Mm -hmm. 
like racism is so st- you have to be so stupid. <laughs> um, it, it's like you can explain this to a four year old in five minutes. Why is his Why is his skin <laughs> peach? Right. Well, that's just the pigment, and it's the way he he's made. Why is her skin brown? Oh, it's just the pigment. But we're all the same. We all, you know, like, oh, okay, done. Yeah. Like kids get it immediately. I mean, it's obvious. You know, it's it's obviously taught. Um, it's a it's a learned hatred. You know, that's passed down that way. But yeah, it's it's like it seems like it should be so much easier to remedy than it is. I think that's the frustration. It's like we we really can't get this. We can't wrap our heads around this. Like yeah, and I think that's ideally is kind of an. I want to delay or soften that kind of learn learning in my kid. And that's why I want him to be around a better mix of people. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, if I'd feel differently if I'd grown up somewhere else, I, I'll never know. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. Was there, was the, uh, I mean, the racial tension in Richmond must've been pretty pronounced. I've never spent time there, so I could be wrong. Right. So it's different. So, I mean, Boston does not get a pass in this. Boston definitely has a lot of racism, but I think also just the culture, the way people conduct themselves is different. And we were also around like in a more kind of affluent area where people would maybe be more reserved about stuff. You know, they kind of bought their way into isolating themselves from certain issues. Um, but we definitely experienced some racism in new England, but it's a lot more in your face in the South. You know, we lived, our first apartment was like, when I took a left off my parents' block, the first thing I saw was Robert E. Lee's horse's ass. Um, cause there was a street called Monument Ave that's right there that has, huge statues of four different famous confederates it's um and we live right by the lee statue so it's like every day it's just this this reminder that um you know that not too long ago somebody had fought so that like people who own like him could own people who look like my family yeah why don't we we knock that shit down i'd I'd like that yeah i mean like that seems appropriate like like it should have been done long ago yeah and and that that movement is gaining some traction um which you know that's what the unite the right rally in charlottesville two years ago was um was about that so that there's obviously some very vociferous resistance to the idea of taking down the the monuments but yeah i think those things should go yeah like they're un-american yeah i agree i mean like full stop like and and this notion like robert e lee was really a good man who was a very good general who just happened to be (laughs) defending the rights of his state it's like no motherfucker he was fighting (sighs) to destroy the union and preserve slavery yeah end of story yeah and 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 that is and that kind of softening perspective is really rolled into things in in virginia and I, i know that it has changed and i moved there 25 years ago um but when I was like a teenager, uh, it wasn't Martin Luther King Day. It was Lee Jackson King Day because Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson's birthdays are right around King's. And it was so, you know, they said, well, we want to celebrate this history, too. And it's important to us. But it's like you're also trying to diminish this like one victory, this one thing that you've given black people. You've just put a they called it Lee an, Jackson King Day. It was Lee Jackson King Day up until like maybe 2000. Is that a southern thing or is that just a Richmond thing? I think other southern states had similar similar things. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think more broadly, like just to shift gears a little bit, like thinking about race and racism mm-hmm. is like, I have a belief that like we all have, all of us, no matter your skin color, have racial bias. Sure. Clearly, uh, like white, uh, white people, uh, who are racist against people of color is the, the overwhelmingly, um, it's overwhelmingly the biggest problem and the core of the disease. Yeah. 
But if we're being honest, just as like human beings on an equal playing field, like we all have some racial bias. Like there's Puerto Ricans who are, you know, have a racial bias against blacks and vice versa. Or, you <laughs> oh, know, <yeah. laughs> I mean, like, it's not like this thing is exclusive to one particular, yeah. um, you know, type of person or, you know, a group of people. Like this is just a human thing. Yeah. And it's something I think we got to be somewhat real about in ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm, I wanted to say this earlier. I'm definitely not on a high horse here. Um, and like something I really appreciate about, about living here is that I'm realizing more and more of my blind spots because there's people from all over the world here and there's so much I don't know. And I find that fascinating. You know, I want to, I want to know more and I want to exist around different people. Well, yeah, I do too. And I also, um, it's like, how do I be better about widening my circle to in an authentic way, include more people from varied backgrounds and it can be hard to figure, you know, like how yeah. do I make that happen? Yeah. Because it goes back to the try hard thing I was talking about where it's like, you don't want to like tokenize somebody and insult them and just be like, well, you're, you know, you're black. So I need a black friend. Yeah. That's like, you. <laughs> I want to you bring a Filipino in here, you know, like, and, and you don't want to be like the, Hey guys, how's it going? I just want to, you know, I'm trying to branch out, you know, like it's yeah. gotta be real. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I don't know what the best solution is for that. There's, um, Louis C.K., may he rest in peace, had a, one of his, t- <laughs> one of, one of his uh, TV shows. He had one called Lucky Louie. It was like, I don't know, in the mid-2000s. Yeah, and that was, was like his first HBO, yeah. like his big series that was supposed to be his breakout, but it didn't do anything. Yeah, there was one episode where he's like trying to make friends with a black person. I think it's played by Jerry Minor, who's a really good comedian. Um, and, he, and he finally admits to Jerry Minor that like he, he, his kid... Uh, saw a black person and said refrigerator because the only black person they'd seen in their house was the refrigerator repairman. Um, and Jerry Minor, I think it was Jerry Minor, his line was like, you know what, I, I'll do this if it means that one little white girl can tell that black people in refrigerators apart. <laughs> and I, th- I thought that was a really like deft way of touching on that. Like, how, how do you do that work in a way that doesn't, <laughs> you know, um, continue to like insult and oppress the, pe- the people who you're trying to gain a greater understanding of? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. And, and I think, I think ultimately like there are people you, you get along with. It doesn't matter what, what their cultural or racial background is, you know, it when it's happening and you should always embrace it when it does. Yeah. And if it's not happening, like not for some like super toxic reason. Yeah. Like, just like, let it be. Yeah. Like you don't have to be friends with everybody in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. think, like there can be like this overcorrection type of, uh, psychology or like, <laughs> or like emotional, uh, experience that I can, you know, I've been through, but I think ultimately it's just like, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. like certain people you vibe with, like go with it and make sure to, uh, take care of those relationships because it's important. I mean, like a friendship is really important. Yeah. The older you get, um, I don't know. It's like one of these things that's always on my mind. I feel like I need to be better at because once you have children, you got work, mm-hmm. it's harder to maintain friendships. It is. You know, then it's like when you're in your early twenties, it's like prime time, college, whatever you can easily do it. Cause yeah. you don't have all these other things pulling you, but, um, I, I think you're, you can be in, in a, you, you're in a good place in terms of race relations. If you meet someone from another culture and you're like, yeah, I don't like that motherfucker. And it's not because like, it's not like, I don't like them because they're Filipino. It's like, right. I don't like them because we don't get along. Yeah. It's, the guy's somebody. just an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. doesn't have anything to do like with uh anything uh racial or cultural like yeah like as long as that's coming from uh, a pure and honest place 
Yeah. Like I'm, that's what I think is, it, it's healthier. I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy to like, you know, just like seem to paint with a super broad brush and try to be like that overly woke person. You know, that feels inauthentic to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I feel like that'll just have you riding for a fall because you're not as woke as you want to be. You're not as woke as you think you are. And someone's going to point that out if you're real loud about it. But I think also the, the flip side to um, the like getting to the place where you can admit that you don't like somebody <laughs> uh, is you, know, you also it, it is valuable to still, still examine, still ask yourself, make sure that you aren't being extra hard on this person because they're from a different culture. Right. You know, right. Um and I, I mean, I think that talking about retreating into punk rock, like I got to the point where I was like, just like scared to try to make friends with, uh, the, like 15 year old me was scared to try to make friends with black people. So I'm like, I'm going to fuck this up. I need to do something easier. I just wasn't willing to do the work at the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I get that. You know, it's like, uh, it can feel like a minefield, Yeah. you know, and you don't want to make a mistake. Yeah. It's like being blocked or something, you know, it's like, uh, there's a lot of fear. Mm hmm. Um, but and then you get all, you get all nervous and then you really screw up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just like compounds, it snowballs. Um, <laughs> so do you feel like, like you can't be in a perfect equilibrium with the different racial components of yourself? Can mm -hmm. you, like, are you equally comfortable with being white and white culture as you are with being black and black culture? <laughs> or do you feel like you tilt one way? Like, do, um, you, do you notice that in yourself? I mean, I, I think I, 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 I'm equally uncomfortable in that, you know, that I have concerns in either situation. So I'm at my most comfortable when there's just a variety of people around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not as much of like a, a, like a dichotomy. It's not as stark of an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And do you ever, you must be privy to, I mean, you talked a little bit about this, um, you know, when you referred to what, how did you refer to incog? Incognito. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you must have, you must have been in your lifetime in situations where people were not aware of your racial identity and might have said things in front of you that they otherwise would not have. Oh yeah. There have definitely been times where like, yeah, where white folks didn't, who didn't recognize me as black and started doing like anti-black racism. And what do you do? I usually tell them I'm black. Yeah. <laughs> and what do they say? And then they're like, oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, and it kind of leads to some like, but you're different. You're not like the rest of them. And it's uh, like, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't need to be reminded of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I might feel different on the inside than I look to you on the outside. And yeah, it's, I mean, the, the idea that I'm, black people can tell that I'm black because like black people come in a lot of different colors and, you know, we can have an easier time recognizing each other. Like, if, if you're, if you're white, it's like being white is a norm. That's the supreme, that's the, the supreme thing. That's the overriding culture in a lot of ways. Well, it's, and the, so pri it's the privilege. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're not going to take a moment to, you're going to assume that the other people around you have it, you know? Yeah. I'm not, maybe not being very eloquent here. I'm sorry. Well, it, no, at the language, you know, it's, it's hard. I think God, that's what I was saying at the outset is that like, like trying to language this stuff is so delicate and difficult. And, you know, uh, I'll give an example and I, you know, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but you're canceled. Uh, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean, but I worry, you know, it's like, again, I feel like I'm tiptoeing through a minefield and could easily be making mistakes. So sure. You know, I just ask everybody's patience, but like, uh, Tony Morrison recently passed away. Mm -hmm. So of course, like my Twitter feed was lit up with, um, 
you know, grief and remembrance and appreciation and eulogy. And there was a video that went viral where she is talking to Charlie Rose. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw this. Is it the one where they were like, do you think you'll write white characters? Is it? Well, it was more like she was like, she was like, I'm not a victim. I refuse to be one, which is an awesome sentiment. And like Mm -hmm. this, like expression of strength. And she said, you know, what would, um, white people be with it? What would the, you know, these white people be without their racism? Would mm-hmm. they be strong? Would they be smart? How would they feel? And she's basically saying yeah. like, take me out of it. You know, it's, it's the problem of white racists. But when she yeah. was, and, and I, I am a hundred percent on board with the sentiment. It's an awesome clip, mm-hmm. but there was a moment if I'm being totally honest, where she says white people have a problem. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that was just like, can we just put the word some in front of white? <laughs> like, it's not all of us. <laughs> like, is that fair? Or is that, am I, am I being too defensive? You know what I'm saying? I, I, don't... I, I think that was a, you know, like me, me talking about not wanting to do the work as a teenager. I, I think that's still, it's not easy to do, to do that work. And that was your, your instinct of being like, fuck, I have to deal with this now. And, you know, I, I go through a similar thing where it's like, I'm dealing with something racist. And I'm like, man, I was just like trying to, get some groceries and, or like, I was just trying to look at Facebook for a minute and now I have to like say something about this. And this is nerve wracking and exhausting, um, to like, you know, to, to call out some racism. It's, they call it emotional labor is the term that people a lot younger than me use. So, you know? yeah. Yeah. So do you think because social media is, you know, so often so toxic and there's just this never ending torrent, <laughs> of takes and feelings. Uh-huh. Um, do you think it's been positive for people's understanding of race or do you think it's been net negative? Hmm. I think, I, th- I, I think it's good. I think anything that has people in touch and communicating is good. Even if it's, um, you know, people are commuting in their communicating in their internet ways or they're hiding behind a screen, um, and are maybe showing their worst selves. But, I feel a lot more tapped into other people's experiences by looking at, by looking at social media, by looking at the internet. And I know that it's a, you know, it's a performed type of experience that people are sharing on there, but it still, it still teaches me more. I think it's still valuable. I can still feel like I at least have a sense of other lives that aren't just in my world. I don't get out a lot, you know, I work from home. I'm a parent. That's right. That's right. That's, I think that's true. Like I would not have like for all that I kvetch about social media without my Twitter, I would not have anywhere near the kind of window into the minds and lives of a great variety of people Yeah, that I have access to because I follow like 6,000 people or whatever. I follow a ton of people. I just, I don't care. You know, I'm not judicious about it. And, um, so it kind of washes over me. Yeah. Um, but maybe that's the value. I mean, maybe that's the upside. I mean, for all the, there's plenty of negatives, but, um, that might be something that if I ever do bail, which I dream about doing, (laughs) um, just like, you know, just checking out and living a, uh, a less mediated life. Like that might be something that I feel is lacking, you know, once I'm gone. I, I like being lost in that sauce. And it's like, I was saying about feeling most comfortable around a variety of people, you know, I can kind of create that dream world for myself on social media a little bit. And then it also, yeah. And also just, but also monitoring the way that I digest things. I was just, um, hanging out with one of my friends a week or two ago and we were talking about, (laughs) I don't know, a few different like 
memes or like recurring internet jokes that that we really like we're like but these just aren't our jokes to make for whatever reason you know like it's it's not going to sound good if i'm making this joke but boy am i going to listen to other people make it right i mainly i'm a wise ass and i seek out humor yeah well your book's funny thank you yeah i mean but you i think like how it'd be pretty i mean it's always hard labor to write a book but to write a book that grapples with this stuff in the absence of humor seems like it would be that much harder yeah yeah i it is weird i'll, I'll be sometimes reading something and i'm like i i, I get this i like I, I like what they're i understand what they're doing here but there's something wrong and i realize that, that it just seems kind of humorless in a certain way and that's definitely something that will put me off um a conversation or a piece of piece of artwork so what about like doing like you talked you've talked a couple times about doing the work yeah you know this emotional labor of engaging with race and mm -hmm. investigating our own biases yeah our own blind spots our own you know racism even if it's like more on like the benign end of the spectrum or sure. like in that if that's a way to put it yeah um yeah. but like what does the work like what does the work need to look like <laughs> you know yeah. what i'm saying like what what practically can a person do because um, I think so many of us, like we, no one, I don't want to be racist. I just want to get along with everybody. Right. right. I want to be part of the solution, but, yeah. um, I also don't want to overestimate where I'm at with this stuff and have like some sort of high opinion of myself when it's not merited. Right. I mean, so I'm, I, that's a really good question because I feel like I was being a little bit catchphrasey here and trying to coast on that. Uh, but I think that, you know, the work, the, that kind of emotional or personal excavation it's just it varies on an individual basis um for me doing doing the work was kind of getting to understand um any like internalized racism or white supremacy that i got by mainly being raised around white people um it was understanding certain privileges privileges as i ha that i have as a black person who can pass for white or who presents as white to some people you know, I don't get pulled over at random by the cops, for example. Um, and I know that's just a, that's a very big example. Uh, yeah. So doing doing the work was getting to take taking stock of some of the, the privileges that I've had or some of the things that I'd internalized um, that might have that had given me biases or given me uh, an insensitive perspective on the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because there's, yeah, that's a, that's a big one, you know, because you're lighter skinned and can pass mm -hmm. like just to, to have to move through America as a person with like darker Brown skin, especially, I mean, darker Brown skin, full stop, but also, you know, as a male, mm -hmm. um, it's like the level of just like baseline anxiety that that must bring, uh, is, yeah. that's quite a thing to have to deal with. Yeah. That I think can miss people. Yeah. Know? Are you familiar with Damon Young? He writes for The Root and Very Smart Brothers. He's I'm, like a cultural commentator guy. I might have read, but I'm not like super familiar. He's 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 good. He's one one of my favorites. Um and he has he had wrote an essay, this was uh, maybe like five or six years ago at this point, but he talked about nigga neurosis, which was uh where like you are asking yourself if something happened to you because you're black or just because it happened to you. So the extra layer of having to ask yourself if that was racist right. and how you might act differently, you know, and it's just like in, in any given situation. Um, I don't know if you, if you want that in your search history, but I say, give it a look, give it a Google. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good read. And I thought that was a really great insight into the kind of extra step that, that we have to go through. Yeah. Yeah.
Um, do you have hope that it'll ever, probably not in our lifetime, but do you have hope like that things are going to get to a point where this is just in our past, like really in our past, or is it, is it just on some continuum and it's going to be a fight? We just never stop. I think that as, as long as there are people who stand to benefit from having people divided, they'll find a way to divide people and that it will probably continue to be a racial thing until people start looking different or people all start looking the same, which might happen in nine or 10 generations. You never know. You never know. Yeah. I mean, especially I think in the cities, um, where people of different races and cultures are living in proximity. Like I want to say Los Angeles is like per capita, the most diverse city in the world. Oh really? In terms of like cultural and racial representation, like uh, nations, you know, like I want to say, cool. Well, it's so big. I mean, there's like little pockets of, um, culture, you know, like hidden all over the place. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like, it seems like it would happen. But then again, like, you know, you look to a place like Richmond or these cities in the South and it feels like, like, is there a lot of intermarriage and relationship happening there? It feels like it would be more segregated or separate. It's still, it's still pretty segregated. I think less now than it was when I was a kid. Um, but something else I wanted to mention, it's also, it's also easy to get caught up in like, it's so beautiful that so many different people are living in close proximity to each other. But that doesn't mean that just because they, two different groups live near each other, doesn't mean that they don't hate each other. Right. Unfortunately. Right. You know, <laughs> but yeah. at least like, well, it's, it's tough because, you know, one of the ironies of the South, like I grew up in uh, the North, I grew up in Milwaukee. Okay. Um, has plenty of racial problems that yeah. were like maybe sort of like quieter, like more hidden. Yeah. Um, but I have parents who are from Louisiana and wow. my ancestors are from Louisiana. Like my dad's side, um, my great grandfather was, he came over on the boat. So mm-hmm. it doesn't go that deep on my dad's side and my great grandmother. Uh, on my mom's side, it runs deeper and there might have been I have never actually investigated this to the point where I would have like official confirmation, but it seems likely that there were like slave owners yeah. in my uh, family line, which fucks with my head. Mm-hmm. Like having that blood in my veins, like, uh, I don't know. Like it's weird. I can feel a sense of guilt. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's like truly like feels, uh, it makes me like super uncomfortable and I have a sense of responsibility around it. And, and, I say all this without even really having total confirmation. It just seems like logical based on the time period in American history and where they were, you yeah. know, unless they were, you know, the quiet dissenters or something. Like, or, or poor and working on a farm. Yeah, like fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, a, a kind of a, a another running joke. It's like it's easy to look back at like since I don't know. I can't trace my way all the way back to Africa and know what my family was doing. It's like, oh yeah, definitely. Um, you know, they were kings and queens, my ancestors. <laughs> right, right. And you know, any and everyone says that anyone could say that. And yeah, well, and we everyone, weren't all kings and queens. Some of us were working on that goddamn farm instead. That's right. <laughs> or like people talking about past lives. It's always like you know they go see a psychic and it's always like, oh, you were Cleopatra. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's never yeah. like you were like a, a goat herder. You know, yeah, you weren't doing Cleopatra's laundry. You were Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but no, but I, you know, I. Just, it's weird to think about like uh, generational ancestral like guilt and like what responsibility there is because even if they're even if my um, forebears were like farmers and quiet dissenters in Louisiana, there are still like in my present existence aunts, uncles, 
deeper family, mm-hmm. some questionable views, shall we sure. say, you know, <laughs> and some Trump supporting, um, Man. people who like, you know, it's really hard to, um, love them, but reconcile that with the fact that they're like on board with this. Like I had these videos of these family separations and these weeping children. It's mm. like, like what? Like where's the line for people? It's yeah. re- it's really hard to parse and to um, know how to behave around family members who can tolerate that. I I, I don't know this for sure, but wasn't this always kind of going on? The like the deportations and family separations is just kind of being talked about now more. Different, different. But different? There were there were there were okay. family separations happening when a parent was like like truly strung out on drugs. This is my understanding of it. Okay. So if like the mother was like wasted and the child was endangered, yeah, then mm. there would be a separation for the child's welfare. Yeah. But like just being like, oh, miss, we're going to have to see your baby just for a moment. And then the baby just disappears. Yeah. And you don't see your kid for two years. Sheesh. Yeah. Like this is, this is different and sinister and it has Stephen Miller's like fingerprints all over it. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, I think very much the precursor to the kinds of like horrors that we've seen in past genocides. Yeah. Like not to sound like too alarmist, but I mean, no, it, 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 it's not like these things, like you flip a switch and it starts happening at like, you know, um, an amplitude of 11. There's, yeah. there's a build and yeah. a slow degradation of our like sense of morality. Yeah. And it, they just, they wear away at it, wear away at it. And then suddenly you know, you look up one day and you go, what the fuck has happened? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm sorry if I sounded kind of ignorant there. It's, you know, as, as a relatively new parent, it, it just makes it all the more emotional for me. So I have a hard time even just approaching it. It's, it's so fucking upsetting. It's, it's horrible. And, you know, like, look, there were a ton of deportations. Um, I think there are more deportations under Obama than there were under Bush. Mm-hmm. Like he enforced the border and I'm sure it was not a completely, um, you know, clean process, mm-hmm. you know, from a, a, a perspective of, uh, humanity, but, um, things that the cruelty, um, as a feature and not a bug yeah, has definitely taken root, uh, with Trump. Everything. And, yeah. Everything does seem dumber and crueler <laughs> like as a feature. Yeah. And they celebrate it. Yeah. You know, that's like, what's so weird and troubling, uh, and sinister about it. So, um, yeah, I don't even know how we got to that, <laughs> but it's certainly, I think, on most of our minds, you know, yeah. especially if you're watching the news or on your computer screen too much. Yeah. Um, so what about the the actual, I mean, you talked a little bit at the beginning about, um, you know, sort of muscling through these earlier drafts of your book mm-hmm. um, in, you know, after the birth of your, uh, is your son? Yeah. Your son. So, um, you know, did you burn yourself out? you hit a wall where you had to take a break and then come back. Like you got through draft two, that draft where you were sort of, uh, you know, fighting your way through it. And then yeah. what happened? Um, so in, in between drafts, I'd, I'd take a couple weeks to like, d- d- to decompress and, you know, watch TV on a weeknight or something instead of like spending that hour or two between, you know, work and putting the kids to bed and going to bed myself writing. Um, and but then and I'd always get to a point where I'd I'd feel like something wasn't right. I'd have this kind of baseline of anxiety or depression, and be like, "Oh yeah, I, I need to be working on my stuff. I need to do that." And it got really bad after that second draft. This was um, 
the fall of 2015. So I was coming to the end of my first year as a parent, um, which was wonderful and awesome, but also exhausting and a major life change. Um, and I was also, I had a job that I was really unhappy in that, that was very depressing. Um, what were you doing? I was doing copywriting work at a really poorly run company. Um, that'll do it. Marketing writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it wasn't like that. I was even, it was, a, it wasn't like a barrage of work that was stressing me out. It was just like not enough to do and having a hard time getting any sort of results, which also translated to how I was feeling about my book. And, you know, my zero fade, my first book was two years old at that point. So I, I was done promoting that and I felt very like out in the weeds yeah. um, and I really wanted to come back. Um, and that's when I started to rally. Um, and between late 2015, um, and like late spring, early summer, 2016, I got it, the book a lot more in shape. I really just made a, feel like I made a big leap in working on it right then and started looking for an agent like summer 2016. And you found one? I did. Yeah. And that was, yeah, I found an agent pretty quickly. Who's your, made, who's your agent? Um, I work with Kirby Kim at Janklo and Nesbitt. He's been fucking awesome. Yeah. He was my number one choice and I got him. Why? Um, this, I'm sorry, maybe I've lived in California for too long, but I was just kind of going off my gut. Like I, I had a, I knew a couple of people who were represented by him um, and they spoke really highly of him and something was telling me that he was, he was the one for me. Um, and it's proven right. He, he got me right around where my reason, my reason, he helped me hit my reasonable expectations for my book. You know, I wanted to take a step up and work with like a bigger indie publisher. Um, and, and, and I got that, you know, in the back of my head, it was also like, or maybe I'll get a $2 million advance. And I had to <laughs> t take a moment to mourn when that didn't happen, but I'll pay off those student loans later. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah. there's like, how many people get that a year? I wonder how many of those deals for literary fiction or literary nonfiction actually happen. I'd love to see somebody keep track. I actually, I saw a list of some of the like biggest book advances and most of them go to like celebrities who are writing a book. So I'm not a known quantity outside of this. But every once in a while, there's like that debut novel that all the publishers are fighting over. Yeah. And my my haterish kind of sour grapes thing to say is that that's a whole lot of pressure also. And there's like, it's almost impossible to make back that advance. So it's going to be hard to sell your next book. Right. Um, but that's how we make ourselves feel better. Yeah. It. I'd love to have that problem, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got those student loans, like I said. <laughs> oh, my God. So you got the agent, um, you went out, got the, like, how long did it take for it to sell? Did you have to wait a long time or? Oh, so, uh, I officially signed on with Kirby, uh, like fall of 2016 and he had me editing the book for a while. We worked on it for about nine months. Um, he started chopping it summer of 2017. So almost an entire year went by uh, and it sold, it got to the he, it, it took like three or four weeks to sell to the point where I think he was getting a little bit nervous. Um, yeah, it's not that long though. Oh yeah. It, so it, it was still like it, it, it happened, but we, um, it wasn't like, Oh damn, there's a bidding war immediately. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess like if things go, I, I mean, it, you know, people can preempt and it's not necessarily going to mean like life changing money, but yeah. it seems like when things sell, it typically happens fast. Yeah. When good things happen, they tend to happen quickly Yeah. when it comes to the sale of art and same thing's true in film. Yeah. You know, it's rarely like a six month process where people are deliberating. I, yeah. I think we were getting to the point where it was, um, starting to, it was on the precipice of not being happening fast. And so my agent was getting nervous and I was like, 
still pretty new to the process. So I was like, I don't know. Is this good? Uh, um, blissful, like kind of blissful ignorance. Yeah. So yeah. you weren't like, you weren't like freaking out about it. I'm, I'm, I'm always freaking out about everything, but I also didn't want to get in his way, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's an entire, sometimes this is a, a good thing, but I, you know, I had some distance from the process. I kind of like fed my manuscript into a machine and it's being sold to these other people who are edit, who are working with these people who know these publicists, who know these people in media and, it's really cool that this is all happening. Um, but it also, you know, it, it means that I, what I'm making is a commodity and it's kind of interchangeable. Um, and it's like once it's out of your hands and, you know, out into the world, it's out of your hands. Yeah. And I can let these pros do it and they'll get way better results than I would if it was just me emailing people. Yeah. And I appreciate the hell out of it. It's been awesome. Yeah. It's nice to have some help. Yeah. I mean, you, absolutely. You, you wrote the fucking thing. Like it's makes, <laughs> you shouldn't have to do it all. I mean, like. That's the thing about it. That's a, it's like this kind of like cruel reality, especially, you know, when you're more of a, you know, quote unquote entry level writer, or you're like really on a micro press or you're publishing yourself or, mm -hmm. you know, you're just dealing with limited resources in whatever yeah. context it happens to unfold is how much of the responsibility falls on the writer. Not necessarily like explicitly, like no one gives you like a list of uh, things to do, or maybe your publisher does, but it's more like if you don't do it, no one will. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like such a relief and a joy, I think, um, to have any help in the process, even an agent, just like taking the time to read and like offer, like, you know, considered to offer considered notes and feedback is, is, um, like, you know, such a relief and, and, uh, yeah. so appreciated it, Yeah. and to get like a professional copy edit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a nice process, like saving you from yourself. You know? It is. It's yeah. And it's such a, it's, I come from, like I mentioned before, this kind of punk rock background where I am like, was making, you know, like handshake record deals and like touring in a van and doing a lot of stuff myself or with, with my friends. Um, and so that's my instinct is to just like be pretty assertive and to try to do stuff. So a few times where I was like, I, I really need to like sit back and let these people cook because they're the pros and I'm really excited to see the results I'll get. Yeah. Yeah. So do you still play music? I don't, uh, but I, I'm thinking I might, it would, I love music. I'm still a music geek. Um, I think I'm going to wait to start a band until my kid is old enough to be embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. So like another seven or eight years, like a dad band. we'll see where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what instrument do you play again? I was singing in singing in most of the bands I was in, but I could play a little bit of everything. So else. you can sing. No, I can shout. I, I can't really sing. You like screamer? Is that what you're doing? More of that, yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> you don't seem like I can't. It's hard to picture. Oh, yeah. There, there's. Um, I have a calm exterior, but I'm I'm pretty neurotic. You got some rage. Uh, maybe more when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's just like fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just fucking exhausted. Weariness. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about uh, what are you working on now? Like you got another book in the works and like, are you working a day job? Like, or is this, is the writing the thing? Yeah. So, uh, things are very transitional right now. Book wise. I have about half of a decent draft of another book, like a YA book about, um, a kid who's having a series of mysterious seizures while going through a breakup. Um, and he's kind of like blaming his ex for the health problems. So I'm trying to kind of interrogate like that kind of sad boy, toxic masculinity. Um, I haven't touched it in a couple months. The other, uh, professionally, my life has just been changing. I was doing copywriting work. I got laid off in April. So about four months ago, and I've started doing more freelance work now. I'm on a big project. I, I'm for, for an agency, like helping to write a political podcast, like doing, working with these journalists to help shape their story. Um, oh, that's cool. I, I'm not sure how much of it I'm supposed to spoil surprise wise. So I'm sorry if I'm being, if I'm being like a little obtuse here or something 
No, yeah, but it. it's a big step up instead of working in marketing. It's something I really want to do, and I'm hoping it opens a door. So it's another layer of pressure right now. You know, I have the excitement and the um, worries of having a book coming out. Um, and then I'm also, like, having a bit of a career change that I really want to succeed at because it's really exciting and engaging. Well, so and, those are the two things I'm doing right now. And it also seems like the kind of gig that there would be some symbiosis with creative writing and pursuits. Yeah, like, are you in office every day or no, I'm, I'm working remotely. Um, or I was nine to five and before in an office. So even that's been a transition. It's been a nice transition, but it's, you know, a few weeks in, I had to remind myself. It's like, just as a nod at the office doesn't like, if I go take a yoga class at lunchtime and it takes two and a half hours, that means I have to work at night. You know, yeah. there are still only so many hours in the day, right? But at least I'm not like, I'm there driving with you. to Santa Monica every morning or something. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think a little bit of both is sort of good. Like, if you work from home too much, you can sort of get isolated and, um, you know, maybe lazy or lazier, or you just don't have as much when there's not as much external pressure on your schedule. Um, you know, it's easy to slip a little bit and it's good. I think to have to engage with other human beings in a professional context. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do like some structure. Um, but not yeah. too much because no. then, because then I feel like, like I have, I've had like several conversations about this recently. Like if you have to go into an office every day, like all, all day jobs tend to be exhausting because it's work, you know, you got to put, put a lot into it to do well. Yeah. Um, but when you're in office every day, and I guess maybe in particular, if you have a little bit of introversion, um, to your makeup, like the expenditure of energy that is required by that, uh, really increases the toll that it takes on you. Yeah. You have to be on in a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like there's some kind of meeting in the middle that I'm trying to achieve right now where it's like, you can go to an office and be there for eight hours and like go to two meetings, answer a couple emails and work on something. And that's is honestly maybe like three hours worth of time you've actually spent being productive. And the rest is like, is not doing that, doing whatever else. It's also so distracting. People are constantly interrupting you. Yeah. There's all these meetings and like weird, like, you know, uh, round tables or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes they're productive, but other times you're like, I could be getting shit done right now. Yeah. But, but it also, it's like it, you are at least working. Like the people that are paying you are like, they're doing something that I can look at and see that they're working. Right. So it's like a three hour work day. But then it's like, I have a, you know, it should be an eight hour day. So, but three hours of working from home productivity just doesn't feel like enough. You, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I have to, I'm pushing myself a little bit more right now too. I, I get it. But I also think like there's different like levels of productivity within a, a time frame. Mm -hmm. Like if you're really focused for three hours, mm -hmm. like no social media, no phone, no yeah. internet, and you're just locked in. Mm -hmm. That's I think better than spending six hours where you're sort of in and out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You I know? was super duper focused for six and a half hours yesterday and it was amazing. And I wish I could do that every day. Yeah. Like Monday, I was also staring at a computer, like just trying to find my way into something for so long. And like, I did, it just was not very productive. It, it was, you're never going to bat a thousand. You're just going to have like, there's days that are going to be great in that respect. And then there's days where you're like, look up and it's like four 30 and you haven't gotten a goddamn thing done. Yeah. Yeah. I put pressure on myself to bat a thousand. So there's always that voice on my head. That's like, you, you just do the, do the thousand again, right. you do it. And I'm like, well, well, it's I good can't. to have, it's good to have goals, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, congratulations on the new book, Thanks, bro. uh, on the kid, on the, like, you know, the successful move to, uh, LA and, um, good luck with the next one. Do we, do we, oh, you said it's a YA book about mm -hmm. the kid with the seizures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about like, are you doing any Hollywood stuff? Do you have those aspirations? Like do you screenwrite or anything? Um, being in close proximity. 
I'd like to. Uh, I, I'm hoping that it seems like Black Card, my, my new book, might be opening some doors. I don't want to. I don't know. I'm very wary of being yet another person in L.A. that's like, yeah, I'm about to break into Hollywood. Sure. <laughs> um, Got a pilot. Yeah, ex- exactly. I don't have any like spec scripts sitting around. That would be something I'd like to try right now. My creative energy is just going into like prose, like uh, essays, fiction, all that stuff. Um, eventually, I would like to do that. And I'm, I'm hoping I have a, a film agent through my literary agency who's like trying to get the book optioned. And I'm wondering if that might be the thing that helps me helps me to give that a shot. Cool, man. Well, yeah. uh, I wish you the best of luck. And thanks, Thank uh, thanks again for uh, making time to come, come talk. Brad, thanks for having me by. All right, folks. There's Chris L. Perry. His new novel is called Black Card. It's out there from Catapult Press. Go get your copy right away. You can find Chris online at chrislperry.com. His Twitter handle is at chrislterry. Once again, the novel is called Black Card. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support this program, throw a few bucks in the hat, tip your server. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to rate and review this program on iTunes if you have a couple minutes. It helps the cause. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Share your feelings. Fuck you! This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. Go get the app. It's available wherever you get apps. Next week on the program, I will be talking with R.O. Kwan. So get ready for that. One of our more exciting young novelists. Summer's almost over. Where did it go? Oh my god, we're all gonna die. <laughs>